Hello, beautiful. And what I'd really like to know is, what's good in your life today? I'm Kia with another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today I have with me Amy. She has had an expansive career, 30 years in the Marines, in the Navy, as an officer, as enlisted, like the career of all careers, right? She's now an author. She has an amazing book titled Heroes Live Here. And we're going to talk all about her career, all about her book, and we're going to give you some great advice for your journey. So with that, I'd like to say welcome, Amy. Oh, thank you so much. I am so honored to be here with you on this special podcast talking about women who have served and the journey on to becoming uh, a veteran and um, what advice we can share and chat about and pass on to the next generation. I'm so excited to have you with me. So let's jump right into it. What made you join the military? Um, Well, actually, I I grew up um, with my grandparents, really spending a lot of time with them. And they had served in World War II. And, you know, they kind of instilled in me the patriotism and that their service. My grandmother was an army nurse and she was overseas in the Pacific, tending to the wounded and the wounded men in the Pacific islands of Guam and Saipan. And then met my grandfather, who was a Marine in Saipan, Guam, and Guadalcanal. And uh, then they, after the war, they came home and got married and had kids. And uh, I just always grew up with their legacy of service and camaraderie. And that was just so attractive to me. And I said, if I can do that, uh, and if I could learn how to use a camera and tell stories, that would be the perfect fit for me. And so flash forward 30 years and here we are. But that's really what drew me to service was listening to their stories um, and, and the lifelong friendships that they made throughout, you know, during the war. And then they had maintained those friendships throughout the years. And Marines, of course, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps because, of, you know, the dress blue uniform, of course, who wouldn't want to be, <laughs> you know, wearing the dress blues. And I grew up near San Francisco, California, where there was a large Marine presence. And I would see the Marines walking down the street during fleet weeks. And I said, I want to do that. And then talked to recruiters. They said, well, you can serve too. I said, that's for me. And so um, it worked. The fleet weeks worked and then the dress blue uniform. And, and I just wanted it to be a part of that and be a part of something larger than you know myself and just being useful in some way. But I had no idea really what I was jumping into. I had no idea. I can imagine whew, a Marine. Tell me what was boot camp like for you? So I joined in 1993. I was a little bit older, actually. I had been, I had graduated from high school about three or four years out of high school. So I was 22 when I, when I joined and that seemed old at the time. Most, most recruits, they call them are 18, 19 years old. But, um, Honestly, I was expecting a lot worse physical hardship, you know, uh, but it's more of a mental game in, in boot camp, a mental game of discipline and following instructions and teamwork. But I, I really found it quite, you know, not, I wouldn't say easy, but I enjoyed meeting the other, back then it was just women drill instructors and women recruits. And so the female drill instructors, were tough as nails, you know, it's scary, like scary, tough as nails. And they did their job of uh, training us to become Marines. And so I went to boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina. And, you know, it feels like yesterday or a million years ago, but such great memories that last a lifetime. And so it was tough though. uh, Definitely tough back in those days, but worthwhile every, every minute of it. What do you think was the hardest part of boot camp? as a female Marine? Well, I was just reflecting on that because I crossed over my 30 year mark last week. And so I was thinking about what was the one thing that was scary to me. And it was actually, you know, in the obstacle course where at the end you have a a vertical rope that you have to climb and reach the top. So you basically have to pull yourself up on, on a rope and touch, slap the top beam. And I thought, when I got there and they told us that we'd have to do that or else we wouldn't graduate boot camp. I thought there is no way that I can pull myself up that rope with just my upper body strength. But 
the drill instructors told us a technique to use and how to use your shoelaces. That was a shoelace technique. So basically when you're grasping the rope and you're putting hand over fist, you use your feet and the shoelaces on your boot to kind of shimmy your way up. And then that's like sort of a ledge for you to stand on. So you grab the, wrap the rope around your boot, around the foot and the shoelaces, and then you lift yourself up and then grab hold and move your arms up. And so you can kind of pull yourself up by using your feet. But with this technique, it was easy and I mastered it no problem. But not having that secret sauce and the instruction from the drill instructor, that was the one thing that I was most afraid of. But once they shared the secrets of using the shoelace method, that's how I overcame that. But otherwise, you know, all the things that you have to do, you got to go to the rifle range, you got to go to the gas chamber, and you got to go on forced marches. And so those were all accumulative experience and then earning the title of being a Marine. And so I was just so proud of that. And my grandparents, my parents never thought in a million years I would make it through, uh, but I, I did. And so I'm happy for them to see me having graduated from boot camp. So that was good. It's interesting because you don't, you don't have a lot of, or I haven't heard a lot of stories where someone's grandparents met during World War II, both serving. And so then to come and see you as a woman, actually a Marine, not in like the women's auxiliary Marine Corps or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's like an actual Marine. So that's got to have been such an amazing moment for her. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and she lived long enough to see me go to deployment to Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, just living through her stories of, you know, setting the stage for the hardships of of combat. And as a nurse, you know, she tended to the wounded Marines and soldiers in the Pacific. And I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be, but yeah, they were very proud um, of me and just kind of lived vicariously through me and and coming down to visit me while I was stationed at Camp Pendleton in the Marine Corps base in San Diego and just getting to experience that all over again and kind of that passed down the legacy from one generation to the next. And I really was the only child or grandchild that did serve in the, in the Marine Corps from them. So it's kind of a special kinship that I have with with my grandparents. And on my mom's, that was on my dad's side, on my mom's side, my grandfather also served in the Navy. So I got the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps covered with my grandparents. So uh, they're quite proud and surprised, but uh, glad that they lived long enough to see me join the Marine Corps. That is incredible. I just, it's amazing when you think about it. I had the privilege of interviewing Liz and she is one of the women who works with the 6888 for the women who served in World War II for the Postal Battalion. And I had an opportunity to interview her and I'm going to have her back on to give us an update about it. But this is something I'm passionate about. Like, this is something I actually want to, the women who worked so hard to bring the 6888 to sort of the prominence in current memory, right? Because no one really knew who they were for so long. So these women that I had a chance to interact with and speak with, I think it's so important to document not only the 6888, but their journey and fighting for the Congressional Gold Medal. So when I think about the women Marines back in, in the 40s, and I think about the Women's Army Corps and and the waves and the waifs and all of that, like it's just so incredible to see the generations down that you're one of those people that are connected to that lineage of women who served back then. And to know that, you know, we're carrying that on, you know, it is a direct connection. You're right. And, you know, they paved the way. Can you imagine how hard it was for them to be the first pilots and the first this and the first that, and we've seen so many firsts through our careers, but to be some of those first and really go shoulder to shoulder and, um, just continue that legacy. But 
as they say in the military, you know, it's a family business. A lot of those people that we serve with are usually their parents or an aunt and uncle served. And so they have a direct connection and see that and get inspired. And so they, it's just families who serve together, stay together, and they continue that legacy. And so it's special when you can be a family and pass down that, that pride and patriotism. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So tell me, were you able to stay connected? Because we served during a different time. We both served in the mid-90s, well, began our careers. And it was a different time then. So were you able to keep in touch with many of your boot camp sisters, as I like to call them? As a matter of fact, I did. A few of them I had early years. I um, crisscrossed and saw across the Marine Corps from time to time. And then when social media came up and Facebook and then being able to connect with a few of them, a handful of them through Facebook. So it's been great to stay in touch and see how they either got out after four years or retired at 20 years and gone on to get married and, and have a family. And so with the invention of social media, that's been great to keep in touch with them and see how their lives were changed and what they've gone on to do. And so many of those service members that we met early on in our careers and then reconnect through social media. Otherwise, it, you know, you kind of lose track of people. You come across so many people and then you lose lose connection with them. But it's been great to reconnect. And I do stay in touch with a few of them. That's fantastic. I'm always looking for mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> anybody served at Naval Training Center Great Lakes during the the fall, or I should say the holiday season, November to January 1994-95, hit me up. I was in company yeah. 908. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm I always know. looking. I'm always looking. I know. And reconnecting with people after so many years, you know, my first duty station, I was in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I do get people from time to time saying, Hey, were you in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba? And this is like, yes, I sure was. And so just reconnecting, you know, with people through the years is, is great. It's a great way to reconnect on, on Facebook or Instagram. So I love that. It's yeah. a different world than it was when we started out. <laughs> That's right. Old fashioned letters and phone calls. This is before email, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Email just came out. I think it was uh, 95, 96-ish. And uh, I remember getting a little handheld device to keep in touch with my boyfriend that deployed. And it was email. He was like, we're going to have emails. And I was like, we're going to have emails. <laughs> like it was just like so foreign. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. And now it's so calm. It's like, we don't even think about email is nothing now, really. I know. You know and such a big deal then. Calling home on a Sunday night or, you know, calling parents every couple of weeks or something, you know, it was just, uh, can be felt very isolating, right? If you don't have those tools to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a different generation, kids that are grown up with this. Um, it's just so different. It's hard for us to kind of like relate as we know how we grew up. <laughs> so tell me, what was it like for your uh, first duty station? Well, so um, my MOS, my my job was as a combat correspondent in the Marine Corps. So that was a uh, photographer, military journalist, broadcaster. So I went to school at Fort Ben Harrison, which is in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's no longer open anymore. They moved the school to Fort Meade, Maryland. But I spent about eight or nine months in Indiana going through school through print journalism and broadcast journalism school for all services. And after that, I uh, got orders to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba to work at the Naval Station there as a Marine broadcaster. So on the radio station, like kind of like the American Forces Network for radio and television on the base. and remind you that the movie A Few Good Men had just come out and it was very popular and kind of scary because of the code red and those Marines are kind of crazy down there, right? So I thought, oh my goodness, what am I getting myself into going to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where the movie portrayed, you know, a very hardship life uh, down there with the infantry trying to guard the gates of the base against the Cuban 
army. Anyway, I got there and I was just one of a few female Marines. So it was still very isolating down there, but I worked for the Navy as a Marine. I was there at the Naval Broadcasting Center and I was doing uh, radio and reporting radio TV shows and reporting on what was going on on the base. And so about halfway through my tour, there was a mass exodus of uh, migrants coming from Haiti and Cuba. And people from Haiti and Cuba were getting on rafts and trying to come to the, to America. Maybe some of your um, listeners remember 1994 when there was a mass exodus. So there was tens of thousands of people trying to come to really Florida or get on a raft in any way they could. And so the U.S. Coast Guard and Navy were picking people up at sea and bringing them to the base. And then the base was at temporary housing facilities with tent cities and putting people wherever they could on the base until they could figure out a repatriation or getting them safely to the to America. But the policies just didn't allow people to just mass exodus come to America. So there's about 70,000 people living on the base that was designed for 4,000 people. So we had occasional electricity brownouts, blackouts, no water, because they had to conserve resources on the base. And so that was my first real experience for, um, they stood up a task force, a joint task force. So my first experience right out of the gate was a real world operation. And we conducted a non-combatant evacuation operation with all the family members leaving the base. And so I was out covering the stories and interviewing, you know, admirals and generals and policymakers and people that were there and troops about what was going on. And so I was very excited about the opportunity to cover this real world event. I don't know if you remember that all going on. You were busy in your own joining the Navy, but uh, it was very tumultuous times that summer of 1994. I do remember I hadn't left for boot camp yet. Okay. So I do remember vaguely about this, and I think it's just incredible how that was your first duty station and your first like experiences. Not to mention, like, why did my recruiter not tell me that I could be a <laughs> broadcast journalist? Like, honestly, that would have been fun. <laughs> I know. I know. The Navy's old uh, rate was J.O. journalist. And um, it truly is the best job in the military for all services have their own military journalists, a broadcaster. And I was doing the good morning Vietnam style, but good morning Guantanamo Bay. Occasionally had the morning show, but I was the afternoon drive time and and the newscaster. So for the radio portion, it truly was such a great introduction to covering stories and journalism and really got to put some of those skills to use after training for it. But being able to provide families and service members that were on the base, uh, this was before internet and and before smartphones, of course. So all they had really was the radio and the base newspaper. So we did the best we could to deliver entertainment and information to the radio and the newspaper on base. I can't imagine what it was like living amongst all of those tent cities. How did you cope with that day to day? Well, it definitely became dangerous at some points. Actually, Mm -hmm. we had some scary situations where the migrants were frustrated with the lack of movement. They wanted to either go back home or get to the States. And so months on end of them living in open air tents on Guantanamo Bay was was tough because there's no air conditioning and they're frustrated. So they rioted from time to time and broke out of the camps and ran through the, ran through the housing areas. And so that's why the decision was made to evacuate all the family members and the children and the spouses off the base to bring them back to their homes. Um, And so just to make sure that it was a safe environment, but it got very dangerous. And so um, it was just a very, interesting time to be there and have a first row seat to seeing how we operate as a joint task force, how we came together and what policies and decisions shaped that. And that was the first days of what they called camp x-ray. 
And then now it's a detention center for, you know, the, the detainees, but it had just evolved. And so seeing that from the early days was just um, an amazing experience, but really just uh, the very, very start of an epic uh, wave of future deployments to come. And so you can learn all the textbook you want about doctrine and joint task force and, um, joint operations, but when you see it come together firsthand, it's quite a, quite exciting. I bet. And so, let's see. You had such an expansive career. Where where did you go next? Well, my next duty station was at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, which was just north of San Diego in North San Diego County in Oceanside. And I was happy to be stationed back in California, being from California. And so I was there for several years and then I decided I was going to, uh, I spent eight years on active duty and then I decided I was going to get out and I had worked at the base TV station and ran the day-to-day operations there for many years. Um, I was going to, I left active duty after eight years so I can go back to school and finish my bachelor's degree, but I stayed in the reserve so I can, I, it's not because I didn't want to be in the Marines. I just, back then they didn't have the option to do online schooling or, you know, variety. You had to go during the daytime, basic, uh, back to school during the weekdays. And so, um, I wanted to go back to school. I was going to be the next Barbara Walters because I was (laughs) going to go into TV and uh, work as a TV reporter and, and continue my path in broadcasting. But then 9-11 happened and that changed everything. Of course. Yeah, (laughs) it really did. So, okay, before we go forward, I want to go back. So you served eight years active duty. I want to know what was the most challenging thing you experienced in your active duty career? Well, I think back in those early days, I, I feel like some of those early challenges of being you know, uh, a real go-getter. Like I was motivated. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to go to the schools. I wanted to go cover stories and I was winning awards, uh, you know, best broadcaster in the Marine Corps of the year or, you know, um, different awards for my reporting. And there was always a tinge of, well, you're pretty good for a girl or uh, a little bit of, you know, jealousy or a little bit of like, don't be so tenacious. Don't be so ambitious. Just kind of tone it down a little bit, you know? And so I started to see that as like, okay, I'm not maximizing my potential here. Or the more I tried to maximize my potential, the more it became somehow like a pejorative, like a, like I was doing something wrong because I wanted to excel and, and learn and teach and train other people how to do uh, great work and get recognized for it. And so, you know, some people, there's always people who want to like pull you down or say, oh, well, you're just trying to do this or that. And so like, I'm trying to do the best I can to highlight and share the courage it takes to wear a uniform. And so my mantra is um, share the courage when storytelling about our troops. You know, it takes a lot of courage to put on a uniform and kid up and step off to go into harm's way. And so we have to find ways to share that courage with the next generation or else we're going to not have a next generation of warfighters. And so, but some people, you know how it is. They don't want you to succeed. And I felt like I was kind of being surrounded by a lot of people who just mediocre was okay for them. And it's not okay for me. So that was probably the hardest challenge. And, you know, a lot of uh, highs and lows. And when I look back and it was, I look back to some threads, some themes, and it was just looking at the people, they just weren't ready for, you know, women to excel. And I didn't have a, there wasn't really a strong network of women to coach me into saying like, just keep doing what you're doing. You know what I mean? There was a couple really great leaders um, who I had and male leaders who were encouraging, but you know, those are few and far between sometimes. It can be difficult. I can imagine. I mean, and especially, you know, when you, you really want to exceed expectations, but you're getting the energy of like, chill out, like (laughs) chill out. Like, you're just like, 
I thought it would be a good thing that I wanted to be amazing and do good. Like I thought this was good. So I can, I can empathize certainly with your frustrations too. And what do you think was the highlight? Was it the job itself or did you have an experience that was just like the highlight of your active duty career during that chapter? Um, well, I feel like there were a lot of highlights. It was, I want to say balls to the walls, um, always looking for opportunities, always trying to make it the best it can be running a TV station or reporting for the base newspaper back when they had those. Uh, but really my, my best and most proud achievement is turning Marines into leaders themselves. So the Marines that work for me, making them successful. If my Marines that, that were working for me, were writing stories and producing videos that were award-winning and, and giving them some spotlight and making sure that they have the tools and the skills needed to go on and be leaders themselves. And so a few of them now that I'm still in touch with, they're senior enlisted or retired and gone on to great careers, but they grasped what I was trying to tell them so to make them better and make them award-winning journalists that can you know, land them a great job. And, and so those are some of the things that I'm most proud of is that, uh, that they have taken, you know, some skills that I taught them and going on to do great things. But it really wasn't until after I left active duty is when 9-11 happened. And then, then things really started to change for me. So 9-11, Definitely. We all remember 9-11 as if it was yesterday and all of the changes that occurred in all of our lives because of 9-11. And so I can imagine what may have happened to you still being connected to the military as a reservist, but going to college. So I'm dying to know, did you get a chance to go to college or did you get called back up? Because I remember them calling in a lot of reservists and deploying them even probably more than active duty. So what was it like for you? Yes, actually, I did get the call and um, it was a colonel and said, are you sitting down? Because I'm informing you that you are being recalled to active duty. Uh, But this was about a year after 9-11. So it was in the summer of 2002 when we were in Afghanistan, before Iraq happened. And Mm -hmm. I was like a junior in college. And so I was really ingrained in my studies. And I, I really was like, um, making good progress after, you know, taking as many courses as I could to try and finish. And so at this time it was, you know, being involuntarily mobilized. So I really didn't have a choice in the matter, but I was recalled to active duty in, um, 2002 to go serve in Afghanistan. So I did have to put, uh, my, education on hold and put everything on hold while I mobilized and deployed to Afghanistan, which was at the time I thought this is punishment, but it's really, you know, anything was possible. Staying in the reserves means that you are ready to go whenever needed. And, and so I was, I was, I felt lucky at the time to get that opportunity to do something that I'd been trained to do for, you know, my career in the Marine Corps and get this exciting opportunity to go to Kabul, Afghanistan and be a part of a task force. This was in the early, early days and not many people had been mobilized at this point. This was before Iraq even kicked off. So I felt like, okay, this is going to be a good, a good experience. And I'll, if anything, I'll learn something. I'll come right home and resume my studies and carry on. Wow. So <laughs> what was it like to go to Kabul? Well, so I wasn't mobilized as a part of a unit. I was an individual augment. And so I was by myself. I flew commercially and then um, ended up getting picked up by this task force uh, personnel. And so we were part of a um, civil military operations. So it's basically like civil affairs where we would go and build buildings and pass out school supplies and do reconstruction for schools, hospitals, that sort of thing. So I was the part of the public affairs team with uh, soldiers and 
other people part of this task force. And so it was a great experience. And back in that early days, in the early earliest days, really the first within the first year, we were able to go shopping out in town, go to restaurants out in town. And so the conditions were set that we could travel freely throughout the throughout the city. And so I thought, well, this is not so bad. And I met a lot of great friends. And so it was just a really good experience. And my photos and my articles were getting picked up by some of the major news outlets um, covering it. And I got to meet all kinds of other media that were there and taking them out to our sites. Um, Even people like Geraldo Rivera and you know, other celebrity reporters that were interested. Uh, it was part of my job to make sure that they got the story and we got them in and out safely. That's incredible. <laughs> that actually sounds like such a fun job. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Working with media and making sure that, you know, we tell the story and partner the right reporters with the service members and help the service members tell their story and help them shine. That's amazing. So. After that, so you were there for how long? Uh, about six or seven months. Yeah. And, and then where, where did you go? Were you, were you still activated or were you able to come back and go to school? I was able to come back and go to school and, and resume my studies. And during this time, the war in Iraq was kicked off and the Marines at Camp Pendleton were bearing the brunt really of all the operating forces in Iraq. And so I still stayed in the reserves and sort of knew in the back of my mind that if I stayed in the reserves and I stayed at near Camp Pendleton is where I was going to school, college, that uh, I would too be recalled for this effort. And so I graduated from Cal State San Marcos with a bachelor's degree in communications in 2005. And then Shortly after that, I was mobilized again to go to Iraq uh, in Anbar province, Iraq in 2006. So I kind of planned my education. I finished my education and then I deployed for a year to Iraq in 2006. So I got to ask this because you're going to school, you're in the reserves, you're deploying. Were you able to have a personal life? <laughs> Looking <laughs> back, not really. You know, I was, um, you know, I was single and I was working. I also had a job working at the local TV station during reporting, and so luckily they're very supportive of my schedule. And uh, no, I was grinding it out. You know, I was mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet with just living, you know, by myself and on my own and. The GI Bill back then was next to nothing, uh, was not what it is today. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was really just trying to hustle. And then, but with the with the war in Iraq that kicked off and, you know, 2003, four and five were just some of the worst years. I thought, okay, it can't last that much longer. But then I put my kind of volunteer, but kind of involuntarily got mobilized to serve with the unit that I was attached to, the active duty unit. And uh, got mobilized and went forward for a one-year deployment to Ambar province in places like Fallujah, Ramadi, that maybe you've heard of in Iraq, some of the worst fighting and what we didn't know then, but 2006 was the worst year as far as uh, combat operations and you know losing so many people during that year that we were there. Um, And so that really had a transformative effect on me and an impact because we lost so many people and we actually lost um, one of my bosses, a female Marine named Megan McClung, who was killed. She was a media operations officer, uh, Major McClung, and she was killed in an IED. And so that changed really everything for us, but uh, really just an awful very sad and sorrowful end to the deployment. But, you know, from that, we were just a a great team. Talk about a team of teams. You know, there's just some teams that gel together and some that don't, but this was a great team that I was on working in the Marine Corps Public Affairs Office. So I have two questions for you. One, I was going to say, 
because I was active duty, but we did have reservists come to our base, you know, every few weekends. Right. And if I was on duty at my clinic, then I interacted with them, but otherwise, you know, we had no real contact. So I was wondering, you know, as you're being activated with your active duty, um, unit, right. And, but you're a reservist, if there, if you would gel, like if it was, there was sort of clickish or if it was like, they're active and you're a reservist and you're coming in like the FNG or, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like, you, I'm just wondering if it was like that, but you said that you guys had a, an yeah. amazing team. So you didn't deal with yeah. anything like that. No, I know that feeling though. Some do and some don't, but no, the active duty folks welcomed uh, me and my, and Megan McClung was also a reservist. They welcomed us uh, just like anyone else. And so we we all formed up together and it didn't matter if we were active or reserve. We were, you know, on the team and we were going to go forward to to Iraq. And so and we've all stayed very close since since we came home as well. And so it was just a really transformative experience just being there in the most dangerous time possible where we were just dealing with casualties and combat operations and very difficult circumstances. Clearly. Which brings me to my next question. How did you deal with so many casualties? Like, how were you able to cope like mentally and emotionally with so much death around you and in such a high stress environment and needing to perform and function at your A game. Cause we, we've already established you're ambitious and, and you, you do the best work, like you go for it. So how were you able to maintain your standard of performance while coping with all this death and, and danger around you in your daily life? Well, I think that, you know, oftentimes we hear from veterans too, that they didn't, they don't really have time to process anything while you're, you know, deployed. And then you come home and you go, wow, wow, that was, that was a lot of stuff, you know? So because we kept busy and we, we had a mission and we just couldn't let, let up on the gas, you know, pedal, we had to just keep pushing through and, you know, still kind of being reflective and looking back and saying, that was very dangerous. That was scary. That was, and we lost all these people and just really takes kind of a couple years to process it, but it was stressful trying to keep up the momentum and the positive attitude without letting it fall apart, you know, without letting yourself fall apart. Cause you've got Marines who are counting on you and you're counting on other people and you just want to be able to get up every day and go to work and continue the mission and get home safely. And so it was a challenge and not everyone can do it. It really took, took a toll on some people during that time, but staying strong and, and staying motivated and keeping focused, keeping the eye on the ball, which was uh, to get home uh, safely to our families and, and still do the mission. And so um, we were there for 12 months and, you know, uh, Megan McClung was killed in the 10th month that we were there in December. So it was right before Christmas. So it was extremely hard on everyone, but we had to keep our spirits high and finish strong. Otherwise we'd all just fall apart, but, you know, mentally training your yourself to stay in the game until it's over and then come home and take the time you need to decompress. But I was uh, home for a year before I went back for another year. So I, I, I came home uh, from that deployment in 2007, and I started a master's degree program and then another deployment. I didn't think the war would linger on for that long, but they still needed more people. So they put a call out and said, we need more people. And I volunteered to go back to the very same place I was in 2006. I went back in 2008 and uh, put my studies on hold again. And um, But I'm glad I did that 2008 deployment because I saw some progress in Iraq that if I didn't see it firsthand, I would have never believed just how much progress that they had made in 12 months. And so um, it was the same place, but it wasn't the same circumstances. So it was a lot, the conditions had improved. And so it was, it was much better. That's incredible to think that much progress could be made in 12 months that you were like stunned. The streets were safer. The colleges were built. People, young people were going to school in, in Ambar province, and we transferred the security over to the Iraqi 
authorities while during that tour in 2008. So it kind of felt like unfinished business for me. And so it was very sort of therapeutic actually to see that not that all those people that died in 2003, four, five, and six, that by 2008, we had made some progress enough to turn over the security. And so it was sort of like, um, very, it felt very fulfilling to see that firsthand. I mean, what comes to mind is like, sometimes you can get a sense of, and I know a lot of Vietnam veterans felt like, why? Like, why? Like these deaths were meaningless. So I can imagine how much better it must have felt to go back and see this and be like, oh my God, like we are really doing something here and these deaths meant something. It made positive change in the world. And that's, that's incredible. That's something I think we oftentimes lose sight of the fact that we do as a military, because we think of like the war and we think of that kind of thing. And we think of disabled vets and all of that stuff. But sometimes it's, it's, we, we forget that the military doesn't just do that. We actually can create positive change in the world through our yeah, Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that we definitely helped people, you know, especially in Iraq and, and made, made such a big, I mean, big impact. And we were committed to that mission and many people died trying to just make that small, that small difference. And it meant so much to them. It's amazing. Yeah. So you had five combat tours. Yes. <laughs> So after my 2008 deployment to Iraq, I came home, I finished my master's degree at University of San Diego. And by this time, I was trying to get promoted in the Marine Corps to gunnery sergeant, but I, I put in a package to go into the Navy. It's called Direct Commission Officer Program for Reservists. And I got selected to go into that program, into the Navy as a public affairs officer. and. Um, I accepted it. And so I went through the Navy's direct commission officer school and uh, more deployments came up uh, in a different capacity, working as a public affairs officer for assignments in Afghanistan because the war in Iraq had ended and we pulled out troops. But the lingering presence in Afghanistan was still very strong. And, And this was in 2012 where it was that really, you know, resurgence and they needed more people. So I volunteered again to go back to Afghanistan in 2012. And then I went back again in 2018. And so a total of five combat tours. And so spanning from my first tour in Afghanistan in 2003, all the way up to 2018, you know, it just you can see the progress, but it just had lingered. And so I even was joking with people I worked with that, you know, I could be an Afghan resident. I was starting to speak the language and I knew all the people and I knew the roads and the geography and how to get around. And uh, so through the years, it was a very special place to be and a special place that, um, you know, we were never at war with the Afghan people. I still have many friends in the media and military members in the Afghan army that I'm still in touch with. And so when you make friendships like that in places like Afghanistan, it becomes special um, to you. And so I know that uh, it has a special place in my heart, uh, along with a lot of other people who who served there and, and risked everything to try to make a difference. And so when we withdrew, how did that impact you? Oh, boy, that was... That was really tough. I was watching at home on TV. I was shouting and throwing things at the TV because I was so frustrated with what was going on. And it didn't have to be that way. It could have been so much different. And so I don't know, having just had recently been there, you know, as late as late 2018, there was... um, a lot of things that could have been done differently. So it was very emotional for me, um, like everyone else, because for all the sacrifice, for all the heroes out there, the troops that gave so much, just to have a an honorable closure, leaving on our own terms, 
and um, giving people that serve there some a, a decent departure would have been the right thing to do. I agree. I mean, I did not deploy in my career. So President Clinton was in office and I believe he decreased the deficit. Nobody really talks about that, but he did. And one way he did was decreasing defense spending. And so for me, who uh, chose on my dream sheet, number one, to go to Chicago's to stay where I was. I was at school. I went to boot camp. I went to A school and I chose to stay um, and be stationed at, at Naval Hospital Great Lakes. But at that time had become the only Naval training command or they were closing down all the other bases for boot camp, right? And so that was the boot camp for the Navy. And therefore our new captain made our base even stricter. And so no one wanted to go there. So since they couldn't get bodies there, guess you got to stay for her entire active service. I never got a chance to deploy. I never got to go to sea. I never got to do mm. any of the things I actually signed up to do, but I did fall in love with Chicago and I lived there for a number of years after I got out. But even for me, who didn't get to go to Afghanistan or even deploy, who served during maybe one of the last peace times, I was shook when I watched that withdrawal from Afghanistan. I was triggered. I was yeah. triggered. And in fact, I am going to do actually, I started it then, but I put it aside because I just had too much on my plate. But I, I intend to do a whole little series within this podcast of, just of women who served in Afghanistan to share their mm. stories because it's sort of like a limited series, if you will, because I think it's important. I was so impacted by watching that. Like, I don't think, I mean, I'm just going to be real here. I could not, I cried. I cried for like a straight week and I didn't even touch the soil. So I cannot even begin to imagine how the females such as yourself who served there. And then to think that you were just there in 2018, just, it gives me goosebumps. So this is why I asked the question because I know how impacted I was and I didn't even serve there at all. But just by being a veteran and understanding how this works and valuing the lives that were lost on this mission and just seeing it in this way, it felt personal and I was never even there. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I know it was, um, I was physically ill, you know, I just couldn't even, I just couldn't even imagine. It's really hard to understand what was going on. But at that same time, I was finishing my book called Heroes Live Here. And within literally within minutes of finding out the Marines who were killed at the airport, mm -hmm. um, within minutes finding out that they were actually stationed at Camp Pendleton is where I live and work. <sighs> And within minutes, the front gate to the base had all the flowers and memorials and tributes to those fallen troops that were from this base. So I believe it was 10 of them. And that just took a huge toll on the community here because their spouses, their families were all here at Camp Pendleton. And so it's a tight knit community and people are just heartbroken over this, that the bulk of those people that were killed were from right here at home where I'm from. And in my book, I'd already sent the manuscript to the printers and it was all done. And it's a book showcasing the memorials and tributes to those that were fallen in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was already at the printers. So I had to pull it back because I wanted to make sure that this last chapter, the bookend to the saga of Iraq and Afghanistan for those Marines that were based at Camp Pendleton, that that was included in the book. So working through all those and the emotional roller coaster of watching this on TV, plus being tied into reporting and making sure we got their names and their photos and the tributes that were pouring in. Um, as part of the book. And so changing out the book to make sure that those were included. But that was the final chapter of the legacy for Marines who had served and sacrificed in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I just didn't, you know, going into the book, I, you know, didn't, I thought that no one imagined that these Marines would be killed, you know, but 
it, it just ended in such a horrible, horrible way, totally preventable, but very sad here, you know, in a military community where people really rally around the families and, and the unit that was here left behind and, and those uh, people that served with those Marines from Camp Pendleton. It was just the final chapter to very sorrow, sorrowful 20 years, almost 20 years exactly. So from 9-11 to that day. Really? And it, yeah. I mean, I think that your book is so amazing. And I'm so curious as to, now I know you're from Camp Pendleton. And I, so I know you're intimate with that area. It's home, but what made you, aside of like being in the military, decide that this was the book, you know, to write? Yeah. Well, I had been living on Guam for five years working as a military or a a civilian working for the Department of Defense, covering all the large scale exercises on in the Indo-PACOM area, traveling around Guam and uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Sri Lanka, covering our military operations. But then got a job, came back to Camp Pendleton, where I had been stationed as early as a young Marine, and then noticed and just reflecting over the past 20 years of all those Marines that deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, a continuous steady state of deployment for 20 years to combat operations, and then uh, resulting in hundreds, hundreds, If I think about 1,100 Marines uh, were killed in all from both places throughout the 20 years. And so uh, many of them from being stepped off right from Camp Pendleton. So there's a lot of the units have created memorials and markers and tributes. And so I thought, let me just take some pictures because I think Gold Star families would be interested. And for Marines who don't have access to the base anymore, no longer stationed here, they'd want to see how their legacy um, carries on. And so that's how I came up with the book idea called Heroes Live Here. So they'll forever be remembered. They're forever remembered here at Camp Pendleton. It's one of the sprawling bases in, in San Diego. And for generations to come, the plaques and monuments and memorials so we can we can pay tribute to them to the past 20 years. That's incredible. I mean, I, I just think it's important that we continue to remember those who gave up their life for this country, like no matter where, like, I just think that it's so important that we continue to remember them and their sacrifice that they made. And we have, of course, Memorial Day, but I think that somehow it feels more like it's about barbecues and taking a trip than it is about, you know, remembering those who gave up their life for this country and for the agenda of our government, right? So, you know, I I really think books and these memorials and things like that, that can put the pictures and the names and tell the stories are, are so necessary. And I love that that's what you did. So, yeah, well, you know, we got to keep saying their names and um, keep it highlighted because if we forget to honor them, you know, what, what good are we, you know? So for the next generation who is looking for a reason and understand that there's been many people, young people who have sacrificed and risked everything for this country. And so it's important to, to continue that and capture this moment in history of how we're honoring them. And so Camp Pendleton is a special place with a lot of tributes to these heroes. And um, and in, in my research, I learned that of all the bases and stations in America, Camp Pendleton was one with the most casualties. And so not just the base, but the surrounding communities of Oceanside, Carlsbad, Vista, and Fallbrook, where families live and kids go to school there and who've lost a parent it's just been a real community effort to support these families left behind and how do they continue and carry on, move back home or stay in the area. And so a lot of those really hard decisions and uh, very, very difficult conversations have been had. And it's the reality of it is uh, when troops are lost in combat and then the, the families left behind and the support network that's left behind this community in North San Diego County has suffered so much um, and risked everything, you know, through the, through the wars. And so I just thought it was important to highlight that uh, it's a community effort and there's been some tremendous 
nonprofit organizations that have come from it. And in the book, I highlight those as well. Some charities that I know personally that have come from post 9-11 generation and they're doing really great work. And so those leaders who provide a network for um, our veterans is so important to highlight. I agree. Where can we find it? Well, uh, Heroes Live Here is listed on Amazon, but I'm also offering Heroes Live Here signed copies through my website, www.heroeslivehere.com. And so you can go straight to the website and get a signed copy. I always find that I like, uh, me personally, I'd much rather get a signed copy from an author and have that real personal connection than um, buying it off Amazon, but it's on Amazon and it's also on the website. Fantastic. And everybody who listens to this show regularly will know that I'll put all the links and the show notes in the description of the episode. You just have to scroll down and you'll see those links so you can go get your signed copy direct from the website or Amazon too, if you prefer to do it that way. Um, But it will be there for you. And so I know that your career is expansive and I know that you still have your career. And this is usually the part of the episode where I say, how did you transition back to civilian life? But you, you kind of have one foot in and one foot out. So my question for you is going to be, how do you balance being both in the military and being a civilian with all of this history of being in the military? Well, I, I sometimes joke that I'm the transition queen because I have 10 DD-214s. And so I, every time you go on active duty for more than 90 days, you get a DD-214. And when I've been mobilized, they actually make you go through the TAMP and TAP courses again and go through that program of transitioning. So, But I, I do. I really take advantage of those opportunities to learn what they have to offer and and hear about the benefits again. Sometimes things change and policies change. And so um, I have been very lucky to have a position where I can plug in and plug out. But so long as we were at war, I felt a calling to continue serving if if I could and being called to active duty when there was a need. And so I really appreciated the opportunity and my employers through the years. But being a federal employee for the past seven years or so, it's been really a, a great way to make it coexist, to be in the reserves. So I still serve in the reserves as a Navy public affairs officer, and I'll stay a, as a reservist for another three years, and then I'll be eligible to retire with pension. So it's definitely a, a, a balancing act because when you see other people who are on holiday and they have the weekends off and they're doing this and that and traveling. Meanwhile, reservists are often on drill weekend or they're doing Navy uh, training. And plus they have to maintain and hold down their own regular civilian jobs as well. And so there's a lot of sacrifices that go into that, but being able to continue serving is um, really you know, I'm just such a, I'm so proud to be able to do that. So long as I'm healthy and able to do it, I'll, I'll ride it till the wheels come off. <laughs> and I would do it for free if they let me, because it really is fun. And you get to be around, you know, the next generation and kind of sprinkle in some wisdom and help them give them some, uh, some leadership and, and help them uh, navigate all the complexities that go into service. Brilliant. And so tell me, what advice would you have then for veterans coming up behind you, our veteran sisters? Well, I truly believe that for our veteran sisters out there who are on social media, I feel like that's the really a great way to connect with people, especially on LinkedIn, to learn and build a new network and strengthen their existing network. So It could be very scary for people getting out, whether you serve four years or 20 years, but really expanding your network and um, looking for new alliances and new opportunities to meet people. I was a little nervous, you know, when I first got out of active duty and how people would see me and um, if if I'd be welcome in non-military circles. But exploring new opportunities personally and professionally, I think, is is the most important thing. Um, it's important to be proud of your service, but it's also important to allow yourself to move forward 
move forward. No one can take away the fact that you served and uh, no one can take that away from you. It will always be a part of you, just like the Katy Perry song. It's always going to be a part of you, but uh, it will be time to move on and move forward and, and sh- show them all the good, th- all the things that you learn in the military. And that um, what I always like to say is that a veteran's success is everyone's success. So when veterans succeed, we all succeed. And that's what we're here to do is help everyone succeed. I agree. That's amazing advice. Thank you so much for sharing it. And when we talked about your book and where to find it, but and we just talked about social media. So where can we find you on social media? Where can we follow along your journey? Well, I do prefer LinkedIn as my platform of choice. I really find that that's the best balance to be able to connect with people. So I'm on LinkedIn, Amy Forsyth, A-M-Y-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-E. You can find me there. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, but LinkedIn seems to be the best place where I like to connect with other veterans and I can cheer them on you know, with their jobs or help share job announcements or um, training opportunities, anyone looking for opportunities working in public affairs, public relations, broadcasting, and in the San Diego area because there's such a strong veteran network here in San Diego and I'm pretty plugged into all the events and things that are going on. There's always some great opportunities out there I like to share. So I encourage people to jump on LinkedIn. If you're not on LinkedIn now, you'll definitely want to be. So find me there and we can connect. Well, I'm definitely on LinkedIn, so I'll be looking for you there. And um, I actually am going to start putting um, more uh, episodes of this podcast out on LinkedIn and my other podcast, Hot Topics Live podcast as well. Um, and, And I'm actually sort of more getting into LinkedIn too. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And we'll make sure we link all of your handles and everything in the description box so that people know where to go and follow you and um, support your journey as well. And I just really want to thank you so much for being a guest on the Female Veterans Podcast. I think you have an incredible story. And I actually just have one more question for you. So out of all of your 30 years of experience in the military, What do you think is your greatest takeaway? Well, I think being tenacious and um, I don't take no for an answer, basically. If someone were to tell me, no, if I say, I want to go to this training or can I go, I'd like to do this opportunity or that opportunity. And if they say, no, we can't, or I say, well, why not? So um, I, I think that the takeaway is, is that don't let other people close doors on you you know, take risks. Risking is always better than regretting, not asking for an opportunity, but uh, don't let anyone tell you no. So find, find that door that's open and go for it. But serving in uniform is not for everyone. Uh, Serving in the in today's military, there's so many great women coming up through the ranks and they're doing so many great things. And it's wonderful that they're carrying on that legacy. And Uh, We've got some women who are reaching the highest levels, four-star generals out there and just doing amazing things and senior enlisted who are leading service branches uh, like in the Air Force and just some really great women leaders out there. And I'm so inspired and our military is in good hands and uh, hopefully um, the next generation is just keep building on that and young women out there looking for opportunities that uh, can't be found anywhere else. So you just can't get the kind of experience in the military anywhere else. And so if you're looking for challenges, by all means, that's that's where you're going to find them. But don't take no for an answer. And remember that risking is always better than regretting opportunities that you didn't take. Facts. (laughs) (laughs) True story. So uh, I, again, want to thank you so much for being a guest on the Female Veterans Podcast. And it has been such a pleasure to hear your story and be so inspired by it. And I'm really excited to see your book and just see all the work that you're going to be doing going forward, because I know it's going to be amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing and giving a voice to female veterans and inspiring the next generation or inspiring those coming up on their transition, their own transition and providing uh, words of wisdom for them. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 
And with that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to say thank you so much to everyone who's been on this journey with me for almost four years doing this podcast and for all my guests who have been guests on the podcast. It's been so amazing connecting. This has been such a loving project for me. It is, I guess, a labor of love is what they say. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming on this journey with me. And again, shout out to Grunt Style for taking a chance on this podcast and supporting me. Still, please go get their stuff. I believe you can still use code Baker on your first purchase and you get 10% off your order. And that's Grunt Style. They are veteran owned and they employ over 200 veterans. And they have a lot of female veterans in in their leadership and on their staff. And so I really love their products, actually. I mean, I just really like their stuff. I have several t-shirts of theirs. So I do really like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't promote it. But I, I would suggest go get some. Go check it out. You might love it. It's good quality. And you can use my code. So shout out to Grant Style for the support. And uh, well, like I always say, I love you guys. And I'll talk to you next time.